It really has to be a collective culture of the entire staff to say to come together, we're committing towards this. And we're going to talk a little bit about what that looks like. Um, one of the things that I enjoy most about um, you know, conversations with different teams is you go from team to team and that common language is so strong. And that's been built over a number of years. This is not like a one and done, like, hey, we had a conference for a day and boom, we're good to go. This is an ongoing learning experience. So before we get into kind of the, the, the bits and pieces of, of what it means to be a part of a PLC, I'd like for you to first start, and if you have a piece of scratch paper or something that you can write down, you can type it, I'd like for you to start out and write what your school's mission or vision is. We'll see if you, if you know what it is. So write down what your mission or, if you had both, that's bonus points for you. Your mission and vision. If you need to look it up real quick on your school's website, you can do that if you need to. Okay, so we kind of have a mix in the room of half administrators, half half teachers, that maybe was a tougher task than maybe what it should have been. Um, and I, and I, I understand that. Um, and looking at Highland Christian's mission and vision, I'll, I'll share with you ours. I'd like for you to read both of them, and I'd like for you to kind of make an assessment of the mission and vision statement. Um, anything that stands out to you, maybe something that's similar to your mission and vision that you wrote, something that's different. So take a moment and check out our mission and vision. Okay, does this look like your mission and vision? Joy, does this look like your mission and vision statement? Um, yes and no. Okay, what's similar about it? Um, the mission of equipping students and seeing God in things. Okay. Could be similar. Okay. What are kind of the key components of your mission? In your mission that you wrote, it, there's probably something academic related, right? You know, this is not a place for kids to come and hang out from, you know, 8, 8.30 until 3.10 every day and say, hey, we had a fun time. We'll see you later. So there's an academic piece, right? Um, there's a vision alignment, you know, a spiritual, when we talk about biblically grounding, spiritually nurturing, probably something similar. Um, what about a difference? Yeah. Some. What's wrong with what's wrong with some? See, there's anything wrong with that? I just noticed it right away. Okay. Well, that's it's not our mission and vision. <laughs> um, um, and that key word is some, right? So, what was that word that was there at Highland Christian School? All students will be academically equipped, biblically grounded, and spiritually nurtured. In the PLC mindset. It is about all. And a lot of our educational systems unintendedly turn into some. And there are processes and pieces that we really need to evaluate in how do we best reach all of our students. I have a picture here I'm going to show you. Um, this is of my little guy on Thursday of last week. And I got a call. Um, my wife was up in Kalamazoo visiting a friend who's moving to California, and we knew that he wasn't feeling so well. And we said, you know, okay, let's just kind of, we kept him out of school on Wednesday. Abby brought him up to Michigan and said, okay, he's, he was talking. At, at one point it was like, yes, yeah, yeah, and we're like, oh, this is not good. And I got a call later in the day that, this was last week, that, hey, 
Ezra was, you know, we got a call from a relative and they said he he's hardly even breathing and he can't he can't respond. Like he so my my in-laws, they rushed my wife and she's holding my my son in her arms to the hospital and um, they were able to get him calmed down. It was a, it was a really bad um, virus that he had. Um, we thought it was RSV. We thought, could it be COVID? Could it be something else? Um, so he ended up seeing a doctor. Um, and when we had that conversation, you know, we said, what can we do for our child? You know, we want to do whatever it takes. What is the best thing that we can do to support him? And they said, okay, yeah, we want to put him on a nebulizer. We want to give him some steroids. And we said, well, absolutely. Now imagine if the doctor would have said, we know that your kid has this issue, this is the best thing that we can do for him, and we said, you know, um, we're going to do option C. It's not the best, but yeah, we'll just see. We'd have an issue with that. I'm going to read an excerpt here from, um, from Mike Mattis. Virtually all professional organizations endorse PLCs. When implemented well, the PLC process is the best way to, to build the learning-focused culture, the collaborative structures, and instructional focus. At a time in which our students' lives depend on educators utilizing proven practices that are most effective, should we allow professional educators to disregard this overwhelming evidence and cling to outdated procedures? Would this be acceptable in any profession? I'm going to jump over here with my son Ezra. Imagine if you were diagnosed with a life-threatening illness and you asked your doctor to identify the best course of action. In response, your doctor says, there's a treatment process based on over 80,000 studies. It's the most effective way to address the illness. It is proven to be multiple times more powerful than traditional treatments and throughout most of the past century. Additionally, most successful hospitals in the world utilize the practice, and virtually all medical organizations endorse this treatment. How would you respond? Where can we start? Now imagine your doctor knows the near uh, unanimous professional consensus on the best possible treatment of your illness, yet it disregards it and utilizes a less outdated perspective. You'd be outraged. We would consider such actions as professional malpractice, profoundly unethical, and grounds for removing the doctor from the field. Knowing what we know today about how to best respond when students struggle, there is no debate that the PLC framework is the right work. There's an additional quote here, um, also from Mike Mattis. When a preponderance of evidence proved that a particular <coughs> process, protocol, procedure is the most effective. Professionals are not only nearly invited to use it, but instead expected to conform to the technical and ethical standards. So really when it boils down to our mission and vision, kids learning at high levels is not really an option, right? It's an expectation that we have. And we're held as educators not to make that an option within our schools that we serve as leaders, or as champions with, within our classrooms. Um, so we're going to talk a little bit about why a professional learning community. Why is a professional learning community the way to go? And, and why is that really expected that we work in these types of systems? And really the question that we're going to ask is why not? Um, and I'm going to let Rick DeFore do a little bit of that talking. Um, but I'd first like to show you some statistics of what high-performing schools look like versus low-performing schools, and what the natures are of these schools. And the question that I'd like to ask you is, do you, and this might be crude, but do you want to be a winner for your students, or do you want to be a loser for your student? And that might be harsh, and I, I don't mean to be harsh by that, but we want to do what's best for our kids. So we look at what high-impact schools do versus low-impact schools, and we say, okay, there are teams that are in place. And I would say probably in all of our schools, we have collaborative teams to some nature that work in place. Do we set norms and goals? Is there training in place to support what we're trying to do? As teams, are we working on building those common formative assessments within our teams, within our grade level, across grades? Are we building? That's a, that's a big one. Have we created the guaranteed and viable curriculum? 
the thing that we said when the, your child leaves kindergarten this year, they will know this. They might not learn that, and that's okay. We kind of look at the example of, we had a third grader who was leaving, and they said, well, this third grader cannot write a complete sentence. Capital, end mark, etc. Is that an essential skill that they need for fourth grade? Yes. All about knowing onomatopoeia. Essential? No. Has anyone ever had to use onomatopoeia outside of an educational setting before? No. Have you had to write a complete sentence? Yes. And are we focusing our time on those key and essential standards? And we'll talk a little bit about that later on. Do we gather evidence? As a team, do we come together? And are we looking at saying, hey, I understand that I work in this fifth grade team with Megan and I work with Kim and we're all teaching this math lesson. And why is it that all of Megan's kids or a large percentage of Megan's kids and Kim's kids did so well and my kids didn't really do so well? And we're going to look at what the instructional practices are. And those are hard conversations when we start to pull out the papers instead of saying, check, 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 oh, four out of five. But we start looking at, hey, why did these kids, what are the error patterns that we're seeing? Where did we go astray? What did, what did we miss? And we look at that evidence and determine what are our steps going forward. And then lastly, working by student and by standard. I'm not going to really address standard-based grading at all um, today. Um, however, it is a piece that moves side by side what our school's been doing at Highland Christian we're K-8 standard-based grading. And that has that solely focused us on the ability to, to not look at behaviors, but to look at student performance and to say, hey, I know that you know Megan showed up to time for class, she did all the right things, she raised her hand nicely, um, she smiles at me, but the bottom line is we don't really care about those things. You know, those are nice things. And we certainly value that, but we say, what are the skills she has, and what's my role as a teacher to support her in those other uh, skills? So we're going to hear from Rick DeFore. Um, Rick DeFore has passed away, um, but this is a four-minute clip that just really kind of gives that, again, reassurance of why, why PLC. So take the four minutes here. Enjoy. And, uh, why we should have professional learning communities, I think uh, the answer is uh, relatively simple. There's never been greater consensus about what it's going to require uh, of educators in order to improve student learning in all of their schools. Um, virtually all of the leading educational researchers in North America and all of our professional organizations have agreed that our best hope for improving schools is to focus on developing the capacity of the people within the school. There's just been an international study done by the McKinsey Group by Sir Michael Barber where they looked at the highest performing school systems in all of the world. And they said that the one thing that those systems had in common was an understanding that a system can only be as good as the people within it. And so in those high performing systems, there was a conscious effort made to develop the capacity of those people to understand that the only way we're going to improve schools is by improving the quality of the instruction that students receive every single day through the collective efforts of their teachers and, and school leaders. So um, to those who would uh, ask the question, why PLCs? Um, you know, I would ask, why not? Uh, what else is out there that has such universal consensus in terms of its power to make a difference in the lives of students. The biggest obstacles that are interfering with schools moving from traditional schools to professional learning communities aren't really uh, a lack of resources or, or some of the other external factors that we might point to. The biggest obstacle is overcoming our own traditions in the mythology that persists in education. Mythology that says things like the way to improve schools is by hiring heroic individual teachers who close their door and make a difference in the lives of their students uh, and are sort of indifferent to what else is going on around the school. A mythology that says that the real purpose of schooling is merely to give students the opportunity to learn rather to ensure that they learn. So there are some long-standing traditions in American education that we must confront and we must overcome them if we are going to succeed in becoming professional learning communities and making a difference in the lives of our students.
There are now over 150 different schools on the All Things PLC website, and every one of them represents a tremendous success story. It's hard to identify a single um, story that uh, stands out. But if I had to pick one, I'd, I'd probably go with the school district in Sanger, California, which is one of the first districts in California to go into program improvement and come under state sanctions. Uh, led by the superintendent, Mark Johnson, who was recently named the National Superintendent of the Year by AASA, the district began to implement the PLC process district-wide. They adopted a, a mantra of no blaming the kids, what can we, the educators, do in order to create the conditions that will help our students learn at higher levels. There were certain things that were expected to happen in all of the schools. Teachers were expected to collaborate, to develop a guaranteed curriculum, to monitor student learning through common assessments, to have plans of intervention when students were struggling, and to have all of the educators throughout the system help one another learn in order to be more effective in whatever their respective responsibilities were, whether it was teaching or leading a building or leading the district. Uh, the results have been nothing short of phenomenal. Uh, it's one of the uh, highest achieving districts in California in terms of the progress that it's made over the last four or five years. And uh, Michael Fullen, who's looked at effective school systems all around the world, picked Sanger as one of four school systems in the world that he wanted to highlight in a video of successful district-wide implementation of school improvement. So there are many, many stories that warm our hearts and keep us inspired and motivated to continue doing our work. But uh, Sanger is, is one that's uh, particularly touching. Uh, they have over 80% poverty, 80% minority, and yet every year student achievement is improving in that district, in every school in the district. It's a wonderful story. I'd encourage you to find, you know, different resources of, um, especially of Dufour, that you can read, that you can that you can go through and it's some powerful literature and, and very thought-provoking. Um, one of the things that you heard um, him share um, throughout was talking about not address, not looking at what student behaviors are and letting that, in, that dictate um, your process and how you um, implement your academic programming. And that's so important. It's so easy to say, well, hey, Phil here comes from, you know, his parents don't care, he comes from a crappy situation and you know, there's nothing that we can do. It's just kind of the destiny of where it's going to be at. And as educators, we need to say, that aside, it is our role to come along this child and put those behaviors aside and say, how can we best support? We're going to talk about that here. Um, the four questions, we're going to spend some time jumping into these. These are the things that I, I hope that you walk away from these, that, that you can know these, that you can commit these to memory, and, and you can really infuse this into your practice. Um, so the first piece is, and, and you could go, and, and the great thing that I love about our school community is you could go to any classroom, any teacher, and you could say, what are the four questions? How do we implement them? And all of them, would you'd hear the exact same thing. When we made that recruitment video, it was the TV, the, the producers, Rhoda's team, got really frustrated because they said, we've talked to five people now, and they keep telling us the exact same thing. We don't have any different content. We said, perfect, that's exactly what we want. Everybody's on the same page with where we're going. So the first question is, what do we want students to know and be able to do? And, and that's really the, the basis. Um, in kind of the silo teacher philosophy and world, teachers are making independent decisions about what they think is important independently that really might not really be what the student needs to learn. Um, and I'll give a personal example of this with my own practice. When I was teaching fifth grade, I thought, hey, I, I, was, I loved my fifth grade teacher, Jim Geertsma at Holland Christian. He was just the best teacher ever. And he had this project that he had that was the world country's project. And I thought, this is like my moment to like bring Jim into my room and like this is a great project. Well, I had nothing to do with that content at all. I just thought it was a fun thing that the kids could do. And I really missed out, although it was a, a great opportunity of interacting with the kids, I missed out on an important time that I could be spending with kids working on essential skills and power standards that, that they really need to grow. And so when we talk about what do we want kids to know, we need to be looking, A, at our standards. 
and we need to know what do our standards state that we need kids to be prepared for, and what are those most important standards. Um, how many, just kind of of interest, how many of your schools, you, you spend a fair amount of time looking at the standards? How many of you say, not at all? Maybe a little? Okay. So, and, and that's fine, wherever you're at. Nobody wants to raise their hand. <laughs> that's fine. Um, but looking at the standards and understanding what do kids need to know, and then having common agreement of, not only as a fifth grade teacher, me working with my fifth grade colleagues to say, this is what we read the standard to be, and as we unpack the standard, we know what is expected of our students. We can write these common formative assessments together. But then I can go to sixth grade and say, this is the skill and the depth of knowledge that I want that my kids are going to be prepared for going into sixth grade. And this is going to form, when we talk about backwards design, designing our units with that assessment first and saying, this is our ending point, and I'm getting these questions and the skills based on the standards, not on, hey, I'm teaching something about fractions, and let's just see how far we can get. You know, it's, it's very focused. And we're going to talk about kind of unpacking standards, and, and we'll just do a brief activity. Um, looking at our depth of knowledge, looking at, for those of you that have state assessments, looking at blueprints to see what are the, the most critical skills. This is not teaching to the test. I want to be very clear about this. Is not teaching to the test. It's teaching the skills that are most critical for learning. And then as a team, clearly defining what are our objectives and our learning targets. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to pass out. Um, probably a lot of you are familiar with Blooms. Um, how many of you are familiar with um, Webs? Depth of knowledge. Anybody? Okay, a couple. So um, Megan, if you could help me pass out a couple of these here. Um, this is going to be a helpful tool for you as we look at a couple of standards. And I just pulled a couple random Indiana standards. And um, I'll first kind of model here what that looks like. And then uh, and then we're going to kind of see how that works. And, and we're not trying to conquer, you know, how to unpack standards and all that. That's not our purpose. But you can just kind of get a sense of, of what this process looks like. So... Looking at Blooms, I'm sorry, at Webs, you can see our, our four levels of, of um, questioning. And as a skill, we can look within our standards. So this right here was a social studies standard, an eighth grade standard that I pulled. Explain and evaluate examples of domestic and international interdependence throughout the United States history. So when we first look at this, we're looking at, okay, let's identify what our verbs are. What are the actionable pieces that our kids need to be able to do? Is it that they need to recite? Is it that they need to analyze? Is it, what level of depth of knowledge do they need to be able to perform that? So we look at those, and you can look on your chart here, and, and this is a, a, it's not a perfect science, but you can look and say, okay, what kind of category of the standard does this fall into? And we can say, okay, explain and evaluate. You know, we look at that and say, you know, that's a depth of knowledge of like a two or three. It's not just to be able to recite, memorize, it's a little bit more involved. And then the what? The domestic and the international interdependence throughout the United States history. So we can look and we break down this and we have, as a team then, we come around and say, okay, what does this look like? What, how do we know that students have really learned the material to the level that we want them to be? So as my eighth grade team then, as we all work and look at the standard, we can then say, okay, we, we all have a common understanding, not one person's going to bring it this far. Somebody's not going to really touch it at all. Somebody said, just memorize this. You'll never need to know it again. There's a lot of commonality in what kids need to learn. So what I'd like for you to do is I have three standards on the next slide. And I'd like for you to look at these standards. And I'd like for you to find where the verb is and then try to correlate that to your depth of knowledge of how far do we need to bring this material and what level of understanding that is. So if you go through and you circle the verbs and then maybe underline that content. Oh, you won't, don't even have the copy. Well, we're doing it together, I'm sorry. Let's do this together here. So we look at our first standard, 4.3.4. Um, Locate Indiana on a map as one of the 50 United States. Identify and describe the location of the state capital, major cities, and rivers in Indiana. 
So let's just look at this one first. When we look at this here, what are the verbs that we see that are telling us the level of knowledge that, that students would need to achieve at? Locate. Locate. Locate's one. Identify. Identify. Describe. 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 Okay. So looking at your uh, depth of knowledge chart, look, let's look at locate first. What level? Is that recall? Is it a skill concept? Strategic thinking, extended thinking. What depth of knowledge is that? One. One. Pretty basic, right? And what are they locating? Indiana. Indiana on the map. Okay. Next we get to identify and describe. Let's look at identify. Where would that fall? Describe two, two possibly three, but more than likely two. And what are they identifying, describing? Correct. Okay. So this is a process, and, and we're not going to go through uh, number uh, the second and third. But you can kind of see here as you I look at the standard and identify what's the level of knowledge that we need to get our students to, and what is that actual skill. So I'd encourage you to uh, be consciously considering that. You can see kind of here, this is, this is what this looks like when it's all um, unpacked together. And that's a process that our teachers spent years kind of going through the, all the standards and saying, you know, what, are, what do we need our students to learn, and how do we make sure we're on the exact same page about what those standards are. From this, then our teachers said, what are the things that are part of our guaranteed and viable curriculum? These are the things we have to know. And those have turned into our power standards. And that's what we focus so on. So these are Indiana. You used to mean to write your own for school? Or you, you, you align your align everything to Indiana State? Correct. Okay. So you could look at you know, Common Core. You could look at National. You could look at Michigan. Um, and so these are Indiana standards that we have here. So. Um, the power standards really have been essential for us, and if you were to go into any of our classrooms, you would see, hey, these are my, my 10 math power standards that I have. Uh, these are the essential skills that you will learn these, this year, and we promote those that, that go, coincide with our learning targets and our objectives. So it's very clear about, hey, this is a skill we have to know, and if you don't get it now, we will ensure that you get it through a number of mechanisms, and, and I'll talk about that in a little bit here. Megan, do you know how long the session goes till? Is it an yeah. is it an hour? Till one fifty to two fifty. Okay. And it's two twenty. Okay. Thank you. Um, when we talk about kind of jumping back to our first question here, of what do we want all students to know and be able to do? Um, we get into. Um, Dr. Hattie's analysis. Um, he's a phenomenal researcher out of Australia, and I would encourage you to check out some of his work as well. These are the only two handouts I'm going to give you today. Um, but on this here, this is an evaluation he took. It's a meta-analysis of millions of studies that has been done, and he put them on a, on a skill standard of greatest impact on student learning. And when we look at these, you can, um, it's kind of a small print, but I encourage you to go online and look at Dr. John Hattie. Um, visible learning is kind of his whole shtick. Um, this right here is kind of an overview of his study. You guys need another one back there? Okay. Um, and you can see the impact that, that, um, some of these things have on student learning. And I'm going to highlight a couple of these things. Um, some of them don't really apply to kind of what we do. Um, but if you were to look at, um, on the front side, under teacher, and the marker here that we use is, if, there's, if it's a negative, this is something that's really going to hurt student performance, right? Um, so retention, uh, lack of sleep, expulsion, um, so when we look at retention within grade levels, that's one of the, the big like, things we really consider, like, is this actually going to help the student? And more often than not, that answer is no, it won't. 
the developmental effects of basically just, I'm just kind of a living, breathing person. Um, and because I'm getting older and because I've just seen more of the world, I, I grow in some of these ways. But teacher effects, um, things that are helpful, um, completion of homework, um, ability grouping, you can see some of the skill markers in here. And then we get into the, the zone, the zone of de uh, desired effects. So going back to the sheet here, when we look at the front side here, we can see under teacher some of the huge positive impacts come down to teacher clarity, a 0.75, teacher credibility, teacher effectiveness estimates of achievement. One of the highest markers is it's 1.57, and that is teacher efficacy. What does teacher efficacy mean? It's a belief that we have in our students that they will succeed. If, if we kind of go back to that mission and visional piece, what do we say all students believe? Do we all believe that all of our students will succeed? And that's something I don't think we always think that. I know we don't always think that. We set our students up not to meet the grade level expectations. And teacher efficacy is one of the highest markers. If you look at a, um, you can kind of go through some of this on your own time here. Um, look at the back side under student. Um, if you go down to the third grouping, motivation, approach, and orientation, boredom, negative 0.5. Depression, negative 0.3. That's where a lot of these SEL pieces come in that are really important to address with our social workers, our counselors, our student support services. Um, Go down to physical influences. Look at ADHD, negative 0.9. It's the lowest marker of levels of influence. Look at ADHD treatment with drugs, 0.32. I'm not here pushing medication. I'm not doing that at all. But it's important that we identify and say, how can we support students that are struggling through different mechanisms and tools that we have? So a tool for you to kind of consider. We're going to move on for the sake of time. Is I always start these things and think, wow, we might get done in 20 minutes and, and never finish. So um, question two, moving on here. Um, how do we know if students learn it? And this boils down to our formative and summative data. Are we taking these resources, bringing them together, and saying, let's really pull apart this data? And we spend a lot of time at school doing that, um, looking at the data and saying, you know, how, how can we better support students? Um, the map data that we use, we use our state assessment through iLearn, um, through reviewing their common formative assessments, and evaluating our effective um, techniques that, that we're using um, within the classroom. Um, I'm going to show you just kind of a, a screenshot here of kind of what we've done within our school to orient based on the goals that we have. So our school goal is that 70% of our students are at the 70th percentile. That's really hard. <laughs> it's really hard. Um, sometimes I was like, oh, if it was 60 at 60, oh, how much easier that would be. The 70 at 70. And that, that 70th percentile reflects a 24 on the ACT. And so we use, if, if you use maps, and I know a number of our schools do, um, we love this quadrant because it doesn't just show student growth. Hey, this kid's at the, the 88th percentile, et cetera. And we see in our classrooms a broad array. There are times where we see our mass is here. We see it's here. We hope that it's not here. And these quadrants reflect high achieving, high performance, low achievement, high performance, high growth low achievement, low growth, we do not want kids down here. And high achieving, low growth. And so we look at this breakdown and we track, okay, what percentage of our students are at this marker? And all of our teachers know, hey, this is the goal that we're, we're seeking. And it's not, we're just gonna say, well, let's forget about the kids way down here because we're just gonna try to push these kids over and see how do we move everybody in that direction. I pulled from our primary department here and you can see that Two of our classes here, we have 23 and 36% that fall at the 70th percentile. We've got some work to do. And we acknowledge that, hey, there's some things that are going on here we want to we work on, we want to improve. We see some of our, our kids that are at higher levels. 
this data here was from one of our eighth grade classes. So we use this data, and it's that North Star that everybody has. And as you heard in that video, you know, the school was really dissatisfied by saying, we're a C school. We don't want to be a C. We want to be an A. And that was that North Star that everybody had. So if, as an administrator or as a team, find what that North Star is to say, where are we going to get to? Maybe it's, we want to be a blue ribbon school. And what's the marker that it's going to be to get there? We want to have an average of this on our ACT at the high school. How are we going to get there? And that, that's the alignment that can really push forward. So, um, Moving on, question three. How will we respond when students do not learn it? I guess the biggest caution that I would give is schools can spend tons of time and resource on building tier two and tier three supports and intervention, but if your tier one instruction is not strong, it's all a waste. Your tier one instruction has to be awesome. And so if you can make your tier one instruction great, everything is going to fall in place. And so when we talk about how do we respond, we respond through RTI, MTSS, building those tier two and three interventions. We really struggled for a while because we had great tier one, and then we had tier three. And it was like, there's a kid who is in tier one instruction that really needs support, and it was like, how bad does it need to be before they jump down to discovery services? You know, And there wasn't a whole lot in tier two. So as a school, we really had to build that out. Other people have kind of other problems where they say, we've got good two and three, but one's not great, or we have good two, but three isn't great. So you can kind of just evaluate, you know, what does that look like in your, in your school, or how does it look like within your classroom? Our differentiated instruction, this is a key one. Retesting on the essential standards. Always, always, always retest on the essential standards. Our school is, we don't have A to F, K through 8. It's a 1, 2, 3, 4. Four exceeding standards, three meeting standards, two approaching standards, one not meeting standards. If you have an A to F grade scale, do not give your students a zero. Do not say you have a zero, we're moving on. Go back, say we need to look at the behavior and say how do we support and how do we say how do we address this. And we've done this in a couple of clever ways that we work with our master schedule, with student support to say, you know, if a kid didn't do his homework assignment, we don't just say, well, oh, too bad, zero, move on. We say, no, we're going to ensure that you learn the skill. And that's, there's a lot of discussion about that. We're going to talk about that in, in a moment. We're running out of time, but that's okay. Um, timely feedback and the evaluation of our instruction. Um, I'd like for you to look at this slide here, and what do these three things have in common? What are the three things that you say is the same? So we've got Uncle Sam, the ACT, and we have street signs. Anybody want to take a guess? Symbols. What's that? They're symbols. They're symbols. Okay. Bell of red. Bell of red. We all know what they mean. You know what they mean. Okay. So let me tell you a quick story. So we moved to Indiana two years ago, and when you move, you need to get a new driver's license. So I went into the BMV, which is much faster than Secretary of State in Michigan, and. Uh, I had to take a test to get my new license. And I took my test, and my wife was waiting outside with our son at the time, Ezra, and I said, okay, your turn to go in. And I stayed with Ezra. Well, she came out. What happened? She failed. <laughs> what did she fail on? She failed on this portion here where they came back and said, you know, um, this is a blank sign. It's a blank square. It's kind of rotated. What are the words that are on the sign? He's like, I don't know. She failed. She went back again. One more attempt later, and there we go. She passed her test. How about the ACT? Take it the first time. Take it again if you want. Take it again if you want. What about um, Uncle Sam here? If you... If, the tax deadline's coming up. 
you're not ready, what do you do? File an extension. So the reality of that we live in this world that we need to give kids zeros because it's going to prepare them for the real world, it's not really a reality, right? And so that's the reality we face. And so as a team, you know, we don't really have the option because we're one, two, three, four. You know, we're going to say we're going to have you learn that again. It's something greatly to consider. Give the same example with skiing. We love to vacation up on Portage Lake in Onekama. I'm going up north after CEA tomorrow. Super excited. We won't be on the lake. But this is my sister and my brother. Did they start my sister, my dad slaloms, my sister's doing kind of the sideways and my brother's way out of the wake here. Did they start doing that? No. My dad told me I was, I'm staying with my folks right now in Holland, and he said, I remember when Ken Mashili. I spent all summer behind that boat learning how to ski. And the time that I got it, I got it every time since. Maybe he didn't get up the first time, but he got up again, and then he learned to slalom, then barefoot. You know, just fun stuff. When a kid learns something and we give them the opportunity to do it, it sticks and they'll learn the skill. So within our schedule, this is a snapshot of our junior high, and I'd like to share two different pieces of things that we've done. In our schedule on our Tuesdays and Thursdays, we built in time where if a student doesn't learn something, whether it's they didn't learn it, it's a behavior, they have time that they will learn it. And we will give them that opportunity. And so we have all of our teachers available to say, how can we support you with this skill? So we have a kid that's really struggling on the math standard. Maybe they're not there yet. We say, come and get the support. Maybe it's a kid that didn't do the assignment. Maybe he knows the skill but didn't do it. Well, we will force you to do this right now, and you will learn the material. Another thing that is kind of interesting that we've done is we've taken our groups two days a week, and we use all of our map data and, and disaggregate it, um, all of our, our data. And so we work in these WIM groups that what I need. And so I'll scroll over so student names are. But you can see that we've split out, like if I go to our reading, we see kids that are below the standard, and these are all of our junior high kids, sixth through eighth grade. We take all their data, all the disaggregated results, and say, okay, what is their greatest need? And then ultimately, how can we take these kids, regardless of you're in sixth grade, you're in eighth grade, and group them together to work on standards that are appropriate? So, like right now in one of our groups, um, we had a teacher that just went on maternity leave suddenly. We have kids that are in sixth grade working on 10th grade ELA standards that would have not been an opportunity for them before. So it's by kid, by, um, by kid and by skill. Um, we're gonna skip this, but I'm just gonna tell you about it. Um, if you were to go through and write out all the types of things that are in your grade book, especially if you're in A to F grade scale, I'd like for you to just kind of think about how many of those things are actually behaviors you're grading and how many of those things are actually indicative of academic performance. And I think you'd be surprised in going through that list how many of those things actually are behaviors. So just kind of a word of caution. Um, I have seven minutes. How can we best use our time here? Let's talk about question four. The last question. How will we extend the learning for students who have already we're already proficient before we even get there. And that boils back down again to depth of knowledge. Talking about if the state standard's here and the kid's already at the proficiency level, we need to be prepared as a team for how we're going to be instructing here. And that doesn't just happen just kind of on a whim where, oh, I have this great idea on the fly. That comes from teams talking about the skills and collaborating on those skills. Enhancing our rubrics, being very clear. The thing that I love about our, the grade scale that we use is the three is the proficiency level. So we're developing out what does that four look like? And students are seeing the work samples of saying, this is what a four looks like. So a kid who might get it pretty easily, we say, push for this, and this is what you can work towards. Differentiation, high ability programming, um, something that we've recently added, and I, I'm a huge supporter of, and, and um, Super excited about what's going on there. And through effective um, and strategic planning. Um, so let's talk about this just here briefly. So we talked about how PLCs are not a meeting. It's a whole 
mindset, right? This is not something that you show up and you put your PLC hat on. The focus of the PLC has to be learning, collaboration, results. It has to have results. There's a really, uh, uh, Jerry Brooks, many of you might know Jerry. Um, uh, it was fun, we were able to bump heads at a conference a couple weeks ago, and he's a, he's a hilarious guy. Um, he has a video all about PLCs and how they basically just kind of kill 50 minutes doing nothing. That's the exaggeration of, of kind of how time cannot be used well. But if you're really uh, using your time well and you look at, at the end of your time and say, how did learning collaboration results all steam into our meeting? And did we address these four questions? That's going to be where, where uh, your money is at. This right here is just a little example of what our fourth grade teachers do. They have their content areas, and when they come to the meeting, um, their time together, and they, although we, we have time set aside for them once a week, they're basically meeting all the time. This is not like a, you just kind of see each other every once in a while. So they split out and they say, for math, let's talk about our state standards. Let's talk about the topic test and the, the check quiz. What do they do if we don't? The reteaching, the small group, the pullout we have. What do they do if they've already known it? We need to pick a, a private enrichment group, choice for it. So these things are already planned out and they're talking about these things. So good things to do in these PLC times, reviewing your unpacked standards, looking at error patterns, student work, items related to the four questions, developing the common formative assessment, and separating the behavior from the learning. Um, we're going to end with an activity here, and you'll need a piece of paper, and I really like this activity. I hope you like it as well. Um, I am going to show you um, an image, and we've done this before with the staff, and it's, I, I, I think it's a ton of fun. Um, it's talking about teams versus groups, and we're going to take 30 seconds, and I'm going to show you an image. And I would like for you to memorize the image. And I'll have my, uh, Megan, could you keep track of 30 seconds for me? Okay, so you can't write it down, though. No cheating, no cheating. Okay, go. 30 seconds counting down. sitting next to you, I want you to work as a group to come up with that image. With that image. So with the persons that you need, only one person. Have to have a partner. We will allow a group of... Oh, you can... There you go. Okay, let's see how you did. Let's see how you did. Okay, check. Oh, check, check. I did have this leg. Okay, see how many you got right. Count up how many you got right. Okay, anybody get them all right? How many did you get right? Okay. Okay, so now with your partner, and we're going to go five minutes over, but if you need to leave, that's, that's totally fine. Um, with your partner here, um, make a plan, because you're going to work as a team, and we're going to do this one more time. Okay? 
talk with your partner real quick about how you're going to accomplish this. Okay, and ready, set, and go. Look for 30 seconds. Look for 30 seconds. Look for 30 seconds. It's Are we close to 30 seconds? Yep. Okay. And work with your teammate to write down what you got. Okay, we're short on time, so we're going to flip back. Let's see how you did. Okay, so how many of, did you guys get them all? Okay, anybody else get them all? Okay, how many, how many of you did better than you did the first time? Okay, it was set. So, the last thing I'd like to show you here is just be careful of being PLC light, not going the full way. A lot of people say we're PLC and they're not. If you're a singleton, you work in a school where you don't work with anybody else who does what you need to do, I would strongly recommend this text by Aaron Hansen, How to Develop PLCs for Singletons in Small Schools. Our junior high comes around and makes has taken ELA standards, and they all focus on the skills, regardless of what they're teaching. Yeah. Are you going to put this, um, is this going to get up on the CDA website? Yes, and I have, and I have um, a bit.ly, um, bit.ly that, that, that will be at the end here. So I'd encourage, I'd encourage this here. There's a couple texts that um, are great. Um, learning by doing, fantastic, fantastic. Kid by kid, skill by skill. Fantastic. Um, what was the green one? Kid by kid, skill by skill. By Jane Keating. She's a superintendent in Washington. Learning by doing by before. Um, if you're interested in standard stuff, we could talk. The thing that I would recommend, this is my parting desire, is that if you're an administrator, Get access to Global PD. It's not expensive. There's great resources. And the PLC Institute in Lincolnshire, it will rock your world. Is that at Stevenson? What's that? Is it at Stevenson High School or not? Yeah. That's yeah. So go to Lincolnshire, check it out. Bob is a great resource. Bob's being a retired administrator. Thank you, and have a good rest of your day. Thank you.